Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V, and I am super duper excited. Kind of don't even have a word to describe how excited I am because I get to talk to one of the best humans I know. Jack Heath is the award-winning author of more than 30 books for adults and children. His novels have been translated into eight languages and adapted for film. If I read them all out here, that would take up all of the podcast. So I'm just going to read out a couple of his most recent books, Stunt Kids Seriously Stucks It, which we've talked about on the podcast previously, 200 Minutes of Mystery, Kill Your Brother, which we're going to talk about today, and a book for the future, Kid President Totally Rules. Hello, Jack, you amazing human. It's so good to have you back. For, I don't even know, the 10th time, 20th time. Who's, who's counting? Great to be back and lovely to hear that I'm still passing as human. <laughs> just, just. <laughs> well, I'm in lockdown, as you know, so I'm very excited to be able to see you. I'm pretending that we might be at a Thai restaurant or something, so just go with it, all right? <laughs> yeah, got it. I can taste the green curry from here. <sighs> Fantastic. I'm having laksa, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. I think I might have, oh, I mean, a lassie isn't Thai, but can I order a lassie at this sort of you, fancy this, imaginary Thai restaurant? Uh, you can order whatever you want because it isn't an imaginary restaurant. So they sell everything, Jack. Everything. Fantastic. I'm having banana fritters for dessert, just in case you were wondering. Oh, good call. No, no, not even imaginary dessert for me. I'm, I'm trying to cut back. <laughs> right, not even imaginary. This is this is weird. Right. Now kill your brother, Jack. Seriously? I just get so impressed again when I read this book. I mean, I know we spoke about it last episode that we talked about your other books, but when I read this, I was like, oh, my God, like the idea is amazing, the writing's amazing. I just think, obviously, you're like, it's getting better and better all the time. But hit us with an elevator pitch as to what Kill Your Brother's about before we get stuck right into this amazing audiobook. 
So the elevator pitch that I'm still not very practiced with, uh, the gist of it is that there is uh, a woman who is kidnapped and she's kidnapped alongside her brother who has been missing for some time and who she has been looking for. Uh, see, this is already too long for an elevator pitch. It's a long elevator, is... don't worry. It's a tall building. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. We're going all the way to the top of a tall really way. tall building. Yep. And or maybe all the way to the sub-basement, given the context of the, of the novel. <laughs> With so, laksa and, and banana fritters. So yeah. we're good. Her captor tells her that um, she will be released if she murders her brother. But her captor refuses to explain why she wants that. And her brother professes not to know why either. So um, it's a kind of three-way cat and mouse game between these three characters, all set in the claustrophobic setting of a an underground septic tank behind a rural farmhouse property out in the middle of nowhere. So that's the the gist of it. And I'm glad you enjoyed it, not just because um, because I was a little nervous about it, this being my first novel for adults that doesn't have Timothy Blake in it. I've been kind of <laughs> using him as a crutch for a while. But also because I seem to remember on the last episode of this podcast, I gave away like way too much information about <laughs> Kill Your Brother. So I, um, I hope there were still some surprises left. And I would discourage your listeners, if I'm allowed to do so, from going back and listening to that episode. I actually think I edited some of that out, Jack. So I think it just oh, ended up being just what you just said then, because I thought, I think we're going a bit too deep into this. So I think I got some out. Fantastic. Okay. Woman, brother, held captive, told to murder each other. There we go. We're done. The end. And I just love this great idea, right? But what I want to know, you think of this amazing idea, probably in the car on the way to a cafe, as you explained to me before, Mm -hmm. then how do you make sure that idea can be turned into this amazing novel? Because we often get ideas that, you know, are very then hard and difficult to turn into a long piece of work. So how do you make sure that you get this idea and you can make it into something that is amazing and sustained? Yeah, in this case, you do it with great difficulty. <laughs> I um, the, the origins of this book were back in something like 2016. Wow. Um, James Patterson was looking for collaborators for the Bookshots series. I don't know if you remember those. They were these sort of really little mini novels that were going to be sold kind of in supermarkets rather than bookstores. And my agent knew I was interested in writing crime for adults, which I hadn't done at that stage. So she asked if I'd like to pitch something. And I um, and I kind of put together a, a pitch based on Kill Your Brother. But before it could even, like this never crossed Patterson's desk. The, the Bookshots program was wrapped up and I kind of just shrugged it off and went about my day doing other things. And then years later, at the beginning of 2020, my agent said, hey, I've got a surprise for you. Um, Audible is looking for these sort of 50,000 word type novels, um, crime, Australian, and I and I showed them the Kill Your Brother pitch and they loved it. So, um, so you get to write that now if you want to. And I was like, oh, wow, cool. Okay, this is really exciting. Um, but when I wrote it, uh, what happened was what always happens, which is no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Um, the uh, the novel didn't really come out very much like the one that I'd pitched. And I remember that first draft that I submitted to Audible, there were things that worked really well. I think the character of, um, of Stephanie, who's the woman holding the two people hostage, she was sort of really, really rock solid. Um, but there were parts of actually all the characters seemed to work. But it was things like aspects of the setting that were kind of 
shaky. Like it, it didn't, the feedback that I got from Audible on that first draft was exactly what you just said, really, Danny. It was like, have you, we love the premise of this and we love the characters, but we're not sure you've actually wrung the potential out of this premise. Mm -hmm. Like it's, uh, it's still kind of feeling not very real or convincing at this stage. And part of the problem, I think, was that my most recent book that I'd written before that was called Hideout. And Hideout involved, coincidentally, like a bunch of people being held prisoner at a property in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so I didn't plan out to write these two novels back to back. But it meant that when I was writing Kill Your Brother, I was so focused on making it not Hideout that I that it ended up being kind of shaky and weird in a few different ways. So mm. luckily, Audible has an amazing editorial team. And so they were making, not only highlighting the flaws, but making real concrete suggestions for how I could improve them and fix them. And suddenly it wasn't set in a cave anymore. It was set in an underground septic tank. And suddenly it wasn't... Um, uh, it, it wasn't jumping around in time so much. It kind of stayed in the one uh, mm -hmm. location for most of the book. And yeah, so I, I mean, I always end up thanking my publisher uh, whenever I'm, I'm talking about a book. I think that's a good thing to do. But in this case, Audible really saved this book, I reckon. They, uh, not just because like, it, it would be just a, a, a long forgotten pitch from 2016 sitting in a bottom drawer if they hadn't bought it, but also because they kind of saw the potential in it and helped me actually get that potential out of the premise. Mm, I love that. And the two things that you said, you know, the really claustrophobic setting, I think that really made the book because the setting becomes so important. And the septic tank, genius, honestly. <laughs> well, when I was writing, I think it was 500 minutes of danger, um, I, I was researching doomsday shelters for one of the danger stories and one of the things that i discovered was that those doomsday shelters are often repurposed septic tanks wow. and so when i was doing some research there i was trying to find something that stephanie hartnell could have in her backyard could keep a couple of people prisoner in that wasn't a cave and that wasn't like a shed like i'd used in hideout and the underground septic tank thing as soon as that popped into my head i was like aha that's it that's perfect that's the sort of situation where a middle-aged woman could actually keep two healthy, um, you know, adult human beings prisoner um, if they would have to, you know, if you can just dump them down a hatch and lock the lid. That's, that's perfect. Yeah, it was genius. I, I really liked it. I was like, oh, genius. That's a great idea. Yes, I'm glad you came to that conclusion. Now, I do want to talk about um, the dedication because it's dedicated to Tom, your brother. Is that a bit, a bit tongue-in-cheek there, Jack? <laughs> <laughs> yeah well my um my a lot of my books are written for my brother like with him in mind I think because it, it's kind of one step removed from writing for myself mm -hmm. uh because my brother and I have very similar tastes not identical but very similar and in some ways uh I hate to quote Stephen King because everyone does, but he's always talking about having an ideal reader, like someone when you're writing with them in mind. Mm -hmm. And whenever I'm kind of uh, planning out a twist, I'm often thinking of my brother because mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, okay, he often sees my twists coming, but I think this is the kind of thing that, that he will, that will get a good reaction out of him. That's often what I'm thinking. And in this case, because it was called <laughs> your brother, I saw, I've dedicated books to him before, but um, when you're writing a book, you always want to have like a really great opening line, something that <laughs> if it doesn't necessarily shock the reader, then you at least 
uh, or maybe it shocks them or maybe it makes them laugh or maybe it's just something that makes them curious, like makes them want to sort of lean in to see what happens next. And this time I saw an opportunity to make them laugh, not with the first line, but just with the dedication. And so I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely do that. Well, <laughs> it all, it um, works for me. will get a laugh out of that and the rest of the world will go, kill your brother, and then open it up and it says, for my brother. And they're like, yeah, that's funny, I'll keep reading. Dedications are one of my favourite parts, acknowledgements. I always read them and so I, I really appreciated that one. I mean, it couldn't be dedicated to anyone else really, could it? <laughs> no, that's right. I've, um, uh, I've mapped, and again, this is me like giving away way too much information, but Excellent. Uh, whenever I have a, a book, um, I like to have sort of a sequel in the back pocket just in case it's a smash hit. So this will probably never get written, but if, there, if it is a smash hit and if there is a sequel, then it might be called Kill Your Husband. And if Ooh. it is called that, then it will be dedicated to my wife. <laughs> Got it all sorted. I love this. Yeah, all planned out. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Even if it, if, I'm sure it will be a smash hit. If it's not, I think it's one of those short stories just to put on your website, just so you can dedicate that to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'll see how that goes down. <laughs> now, you've included a Grantland Rice quote at the beginning. Did this drive mm. the story for you or why did you include it? Now, that bit, so when I'm writing, I'm often thinking more about tone than about content. Like I don't have the, the quote in front of me and it came quite late in the, the process, but I was just thinking, I was thinking a lot about sports people. Like you might be getting the, the sense from the novel because the main character, Elise, is a disgraced athlete and I'm even though I'm not really interested in sport, I am interested in athletes, partly because they're so different from me. They have, um, there's this thing where they have to be incredibly diligent and incredibly dedicated to their craft and not just, you know, nine to five, but 24 hours a day, they have to watch what they eat and what they drink and be training constantly and how often they sleep and how much and all this stuff. And all of it is just so as they can run around in circles like a quarter of a second faster than someone else can run around in a circle. Right? There's no <laughs> practical point to it. That's what fascinates me. And they would presumably say the same thing about me and my job, right? Like in order to write this book, I, um, I interviewed one of the fastest hurdlers in the world. Her name is Lauren Bowden and she's amazing. But I don't know if she got the sense from the conversation we had that I would have no idea that I had no idea why you would do what she does, um, like that I didn't see the point. But I definitely got the sense from her that she didn't really see the point in what I do. I, it, it was um, one of those. I mean, I'm sure we. I, I liked her. I hope that she liked me as well. But our worldviews are so different. But anyway, when I was looking for quotes that kind of encapsulated the book or, again, would make the reader curious, uh, Grantland Rice was a sports writer and there was something about, uh, you know, by hill and hollow that made me think of the septic tank and there was something about um, uh, someone whispering in your ear that, that made me think of sort of greed, the, the greed that some of the characters have. And, um, you know, when, when the gold was thick, like we've got uh, Elise sort of desperately trying to win a gold medal and doing whatever it takes to do it. And um, I'm old and great, this, which made me think of Stephanie, who's not old. She's, you know, 40s, but certainly aged a lot 
for given what she's been through. It felt like that those four lines of that little poem just really seemed to encapsulate four things about the story. So I wanted to include it, even if it didn't summarise the story, it just sort of hinted at the tone. Mm, no, I liked it. And it was, I've got to say, I read it, you know, while the Olympics was on. So that was a little bit of an added bonus for me, I think. Yeah, it's a weird coincidence that it, <laughs> I did not plan that for the book to be dropping on Audible at the same time mm. as the Olympics is on. It, that's just a thing that happened. I don't think Audible planned it either. <laughs> yeah, but it was cool because I had it on in the background while I was reading um, your manuscript on a PDF. So it was kind of, I felt like, the, you know, just the mood, the setting was the, was right. Yeah, awesome. It's really hard to know whether when you're writing a book, whether it's going to come out kind of whether by the time it comes out, like the world may have moved on from whatever you're writing about or whether you're kind of too far ahead of your time. Like I, I wrote a, a book in, um, in it was published in 2010. I forget when I wrote it, but it was about basically Google's algorithms becoming sentient and sort of escaping from their their lab. And that book seems very topical now, but that was back in 2010. No one cared, so <laughs> it didn't really work. But there's certainly been other instances where um, where I've written things where by the time they, they come out, they feel like they're, they're done. But in this case, I'm writing about, you know, athletes and it comes out right in the middle of the Olympics. I Perfect. finally finally had an instance of good timing in my <laughs> nailed career. it nailed it now you've talked a little bit about audible and how you've worked with them and you know their great editing service etc but what was different I and mean, it's obviously a shorter book than what you would usually write what were the challenges or the differences in in writing a book for audible specifically yeah so it, it was interesting in a few ways i'm used to writing um to like I've had books come out as audiobooks in the past, but those have just been, you know, an actor reads the book. So so word for word, scene for scene, it's the same. Um, whereas when I was writing this, uh, I found that I was having to kind of switch off the part of my brain that focused on how things would look on the page in terms of the paragraphing and the word stacking uh -huh. and all that stuff. That's there, interesting. There was a whole lot of stuff that I jettisoned because it was not important for the audio medium. Mm -hmm. But there was also things that I suddenly had to be careful of. Like, you don't want to say um, that Elise said something angrily necessarily. You want to leave the word angrily out so as the actress can actually decide the emotion and make it uh, and make it feel real and authentic mm, in their that's way. That's interesting. So it's a yeah, different technique of writing. Yeah, that totally. And it becomes a kind of thing where the actor isn't, just an interpreter of your book they're almost like your co-author kind of mm. deciding how the character is going to feel or react in a different moment like they can't change the lines although the the actor Hannah Monson I gave her permission to change the lines if she wanted to um but to my knowledge she hasn't done so I think she's just sort of found the the emotion that suited her view of the character at any given time and delivered the lines in that way. Mm -hmm. So that was all a thing. And then there's just other weird quirky stuff. Like there was a line where it said something like, um, Elise snorted awake, uh, fenir or something. And, and Audible had highlighted that and said, do you want the actor to actually say fenir or do you just <laughs> want her to make a snorting awake sound? And I was like, wow, I really am. I wasn't even thinking of the actor when I wrote that. I just kind of, typed out the sort of snuffling awake sound on the page as though someone was going to be seeing it visually. And the actor had all these questions about how to pronounce the names and stuff. And I'm like, 
oh, I'm not used to it mattering. <laughs> I'm used to the reader kind of just deciding for themselves, all that stuff. So, yeah, it was a really interesting experience. Mm, I love that. I love the differences. Now, I just want to circle back a bit because I saw this on a post um, of yours on social media a while ago about word stacking, and I, I never knew about this until you actually took a picture and started circling the ends of words. Tell us about word stacking for those people that aren't sure. Right, yeah. You end up with... so. Uh, the first few stages of writing a book, this doesn't matter at all. So you write your first draft, you never show that to anybody, and then you edit it, you make all the changes you want to, and then you make more changes based on the publisher's feedback, and then more based on the copy editor's feedback, and then more based on the proofreader's feedback. And kind of the last thing that happens is it goes to the typesetter who actually lays out how all the words are going to look on the page. And sometimes... Um, presumably, I, I've never worked as a typesetter, but their first step would just be turning the Microsoft Word document into a PDF and putting the page numbers down the bottom and all that stuff. And then you start to notice things like sometimes words are stacked on top of one another. So the word set will be on one line and then the word set will also be on the following line in exactly the same place. And it, it's not it's only when you've actually seen this in a um, in a document that you know how jarring it is. Like, it sounds like nothing. But when there's two words that are the same right on top of one another, the reader's eye kind of sticks. You sort of lose your place. And it's annoying when it happens. And you'd be surprised how annoying it is. And the reason you'd be surprised is because publishers go to such lengths to avoid that. And so sometimes they'll ask me to change the word. Other times they'll ask me to change a different word so as they can shift one of the lines across and so as it, it doesn't become an issue. But sometimes there's a word like, uh, you know, and. So the word and has no synonyms that I'm aware of. Um, and maybe plus, but that would be clunky. So sometimes you can't change the word and it appears several times and it's not necessarily stacked. Sometimes they're lined up diagonally mm -hmm. and that makes a funny shape on the page that the reader will actually notice and it'll distract. So that's the kind of thing you have to avoid as well. Um, it's so yeah, interesting because as a reader, you don't think of these things. And I remember when you posted it, I just found it such an interesting thing because it is a visual medium in a way, like you're reading it and you don't want to be taken out of the story. So I guess that's the point. They don't want you to be jarred or looking at diagonal words. They just want you to be in the story and have no reason to fall out of it, I guess. Exactly. That's right. You want to be completely immersed. And so that's why it doesn't sound like a big deal that an audible novel did didn't have to worry about that kind of thing but it was surprising to me just how liberating it was to not have to think about that kind of thing to put all my focus on just the characters the plot and the setting and making all that feel authentic rather than worrying about the, the words themselves such an interesting process because you would think there's not too many differences but there are very specific differences between writing yeah. a physical book and an audible I love that definitely now, I've spoken to Gabe, uh, Gabriel Bergmoser, a number of times, twice this year, I think, with his uh, YA book and with his, his new book, The Inheritance, and I know you've read The Inheritance as well, and you seem to come up in the conversation all the time. So I thought, well, let's talk about Gabe. Oh, I have to tell you, <laughs> whenever I need a little bit of an ego boost, I find that episode where you and Gabe just spend, you know, five to ten minutes saying lovely things about me. And I listen to that and I go, ah, okay, I can do my job now. I'm not a fraud. People like my work. <laughs> I, I can get this book done. But, yeah, uh, Gabe's a lovely guy. But also, um, completely independently of that, The Inheritance is a fantastic book. Isn't it? Like, 
I was just blown away by that. I mean, I read the first one and I liked it. That was mm-hmm. that was called The Hunted for those who are unfamiliar. But the second one feels like it's on another level. It was one of those books that consistently upended my expectations. Yeah. Every time I thought the main character, Maggie, was about to get captured and about to hear the villain's monologue explaining what the big plan was, instead she just starts, like, beheading people. <laughs> or breaking their fingers or whatever. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, People are going to think that I'm using hyperbole. This is like an extraordinarily violent book, but in a way that's sort of, you know, I've heard the, the, the marketing for The Inheritance seems to be, you know, comparing it to, to John Wick and other yeah. things like that. Um, I think of it in terms of, it's more like Sin City, kind mm-hmm. of, yes. if you're looking at, so not only that really dark tone, but also that sort of highly stylized Tarantino-esque violence. I know mm. Sin City was directed by Robert Rodriguez, not Tarantino, but you know what I mean. Yeah, like I do, I do. Of, that sort of gleeful splashing about of blood instead of the <laughs> the kind of horrible splashing about of blood, if, if mm. that makes sense. And, yeah. of course, I digged that it was a female protagonist. You know, I mean, Tarantino does that, obviously, but, I, you know, I really liked it as well. It's funny, though, because when Gabe started talking to me about the inheritance very early on, so maybe it had changed a little bit since, the you know, the book came out, but he said, oh, it's more of an internal story of Maggie. So I was expecting a bit of a quieter story. <laughs> chapter I'm like whoa okay so it's not not that quiet book that I was expecting yeah he totally lied to you I think think, think you're right although you know what I wouldn't be surprised if so Damon Lindelof the screenwriter once said I don't think I'm misquoting him here but he said something about how um, his starting point is that every character has a secret like something that they are concealing and the audience may never find out what it is. That's not the point. The point is to infuse the characters' actions and their words with a sort of deeper meaning that makes them feel more human in a way where the reader can't, doesn't the reader can't sorry in the case of Dan Lindelof it's not a reader because he's a screenwriter but the audience can't tell what the character is thinking but the point is the audience can tell the character is thinking something Mm. I feel like there's a lot of that in Maggie in um, The Hunted and The Inheritance because like you don't get a lot of her internal thoughts in either book but you can see that the cogs are whirring you can tell that she's up to something yeah one of the things that I really liked about The Inheritance that didn't work quite so well for me in The Hunted is that in The Inheritance, she kind of brings the reader on the journey with her a bit more. Like at any given time, you can't tell what she's thinking, but you can usually see what she's trying to do and why. And it's very easy to then jump on board and then cheer when she starts mutilating people. Whereas in The Hunted, I found her a bit too mysterious to identify with most of the way. The character who I really identified with died very early on, (laughs) leaving me kind of um not shipwrecked it's not the word adrift a bit and mm. until kind of close to the end of the novel mm. you know what I think we had a very very similar reading of both books because I really enjoyed The Hunted for what it was I thought it was a great story but then I, t- I said to Gabe is this okay to say this but I just lo- like I loved The Hunted but The Inheritance next level you know and he was actually very yeah. happy about that but I'm like wow you, you blew me away I had a um a private conversation with Gabe I'm I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this but we we were talking a bit about having that same experience of people um uh 
about getting insecure about writing a sequel because so many people are likely to say that they didn't didn't like it as much as the first one. Um, and that's interesting because a writer's skill obviously builds over time. Like no one becomes worse at writing. Like <laughs> obviously you can write books that are worse than the ones you wrote before if you're putting less time into them or if you're putting less effort into them or something something else goes wrong. But ultimately you, you just keep adding more and more tools to your toolkit. So theoretically the books should keep getting better. But what actually happens though is the only people who bother to read a sequel are the ones who loved the first one. So those people who loved the first one, the mere fact that the second one is different and it's got to be, otherwise it'll be boring, means that those people are likely to enjoy it less. So there's this weird thing where it's easy to start getting insecure. You, you think that your skills are slipping, but actually it's almost just a quirk of statistics. This happens with the Hangman books all the time. I, uh, I am very confident that Hangman is a much shakier novel than uh, Hunter or Hideout, but people are always telling me they liked Hangman best. And that makes sense because if they didn't love Hangman, they wouldn't have read the other two. So mm. I just try to ignore that and keep on trucking. Yeah, that's great, great advice. But it's about expectation as well. And you don't have control of that expectation of readers once you've written a sequel. True. Yeah, yeah. If, and in fact, if you're doing your job right, the expectations should be super high. And then it's very difficult not to fall short of them. That's a good point as well. <laughs> that's right. Now, I also want to talk about Paul Cleave because we mm. talked about you as well. I don't know, I'm talking about you a lot, Jack, when I go on my interviews. <laughs> But you introduced me to Paul Cleave, whatever it takes. You went, you're going to love this book. I trusted you. I did. And I've got to say, I read a lot of books a year, Jack, and a lot of them I really, really love, but it takes a lot now for a book to blow me away. Honestly, it takes a lot for me to go, I, wow, I cannot put this down. And so now those kind of books really stick in my memory. Whatever it takes was one of those. And then, of course, mm -hmm. after I spoke to Paul Cleave, who was just such a surprisingly hilarious human, like we just laughed for a really long time in that interview because you don't know when you speak to crime writers you know you think they're going to be very serious or dark which sometimes they are but he was just hilarious and then I thought okay we did talk about you and your reaction to the cleaner I'm a, I apologize for this because it's just such a great story though Jack and so I've started reading the cleaner but what I want to talk to you about and we talked about this a little bit off air is that that first chapter Honestly, mm. it is one of the best first chapters I think I've read in my entire life, not only because of the little twist, but as we were talking about before, you just knew, and I don't know how, so maybe you know how, maybe we can unpack it, how I knew through that chapter I was going to be rewarded and there was this kind of anticipation or pace and then I thought, oh, my God, I have to get to the end of this chapter because something amazing is going to happen and it didn't disappoint me. So I want to talk about as a writer how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, I think it is really important because as, as a reader, it's easy to kind of get hung up on the twists themselves and how good they were or how much you saw them coming or whatever. But it's easy to forget the fact that you only got to the twist because there was something kind of holding on to you before that, an expectation building. And when I was um, talking to some kids today uh, at a school visit and these were like year three four kids so I didn't have the opportunity to talk about kill your brother or hangman or any of those other things so instead I used like a nice safe kiddie friendly oh, example nice. which was I said okay there's a man walking down the street and there's a banana peel in front of him and the man does not see the banana peel that's important because if he did see the banana peel he's not going to step on a banana peel that he's looking right at 
so you know he's in danger and he doesn't. So that's one way of doing it, right? That, that gap between what the reader knows and what the character knows, and that's called dramatic irony, as you with your English teacher background would know. Um, or you, you could tell me that I'm wrong because you're actually qualified to know <laughs> these things and I'm rightly guessing. Um, so the man walks closer and closer and closer to the banana peel. So now you have escalation. That's another way to get the reader, get the reader's attention, make it seem like the situation is getting worse or building towards something. And then at the last second, the man steps over the banana peel and falls down an open manhole and goes, whoa, and falls into the darkness and you never see him again. So what you expected to happen to the man isn't what happened, but the point is you expected something. So I, I like to tell, I told the kids the, um, the same story then, but without the suspense and just said, okay, there's a man walking down the street, the sun is shining, the birds are singing, it's a beautiful day, and then, whoa, he falls down a manhole. So the twist is bigger, but without the suspense leading up to it, it doesn't work. So in my stories, Often it's an element of danger. It's that thing where you can see something sharp in, even with kids' stories, you know, there's a smell of smoke or there's something sharp in, there's a sword hanging on the wall or something. There's got to be something that, that makes you think that the character might end up in danger, but whatever does happen shouldn't be what they expected to happen. And again, I haven't read The Cleaner since 2006. But my memory of that chapter is that there's a guy coming home from work and there's something about his thoughts or his actions. Oh, man, I feel like a TV psychic here, just kind of reaching for, for something. <laughs> no, you're right. right. You're so, so far, you're spot on. But yeah, he's, he, he has this kind of expectation. So you don't know what he's expecting, but the reader can tell that he's expecting something to happen when he gets... Uh, when he gets to apparently his house and meets with apparently his wife. And then what does actually happen is not what the reader expected, but the point is they're expecting something. I yeah. know. It's, a diff- it's easy to say and difficult to do. Yeah, genius, um, honestly. Yeah, Paul Cleave does it really well oh, every time. He does, he does. I just love his writing. So thank you um, for introducing me to his writing. But, um, yeah, I just wanted to unpack that because I just thought, how does he do that? Brilliant. Yeah. But you do it really well too. And I remember that still sticks in my head when we spoke about Stunt Kid and we we're talking about how you create humour. You know, and you were saying with, with the dad, it's it's funny because you flipped the expectations of, of the child and the father. So the father wants to do all this stunt stuff and the kid doesn't, and that's where the humour is. So it's yeah. finding humour in unexpected places. That's really stuck with me. Well, I um I'm glad that. The more I think about it, the more I realise it's also an exaggeration of the role that you would actually expect. Like Mm -hmm. when you've got the, again, this was something I was saying to the kids today, but there's the first scene of Stunt Kid Seriously Stacks It has Levi standing on the edge of a boat um, and his dad is on the riverbank with a camera telling him to jump into this river despite the fact that it's full of crocodiles and toxic waste and all that other stuff. And Levi doesn't want to do it. So, yeah, you've got the role reversal of the sort of crazy lunatic dad and, um, and the, the kid who's the careful one. But then I started to think about 
you know how you learn to ride a bike. Like if you know how to ride a bike, that means at some point in your life, you've had an adult with their hand on your back going like, okay, I'm going to let go now. And you said, no, don't let go. And then the adult said, it'll be fine. Just keep pedaling like we practiced. And you said, no, I want my training wheels back. And then they said, you're a 40 year old woman now. You can't have training wheels anymore. So we've all been in that situation where an adult is telling us something is safe and we are, are not comfortable with it. So I guess you can get humor from reversal, but you can also get it from exaggeration. Mm-hmm. And I'm still not quite sure which one I did there. I only know that it was funny. I think you <laughs> did both. But I think you did both because even though the father, you know, was a little bit more daredevil and the kid was um, more cautious, then I think you upped the ante because there were like crocodiles in the swamp and he's telling him to do this blowing and blowing things up. And so I think you did both. Yeah, I'm struggling at the moment with the third book in that series, which uh, so the second one hasn't come out yet, but mm-hmm. I'm I'm writing the third one at the moment. And it's about Maya, who's one of the other characters from Stunt Kid. And she was a great side character, this this girl who thought of herself as a supervillain. And um, a lot of the jokes were about her supervillain antics happening in the background. And now that I'm writing the book about her, I have to kind of decide how real that is, like what level of reality to set it on, to, to what extent is she a real supervillain and to what extent is she just a regular kid with delusions of grandeur and stuff like that. And I'm, that's really difficult and I'm really struggling with it. I don't know if you can see on the Zoom call that I'm going grey, but I am actually going grey <laughs> trying to write this, this book. I'm behind on it. I've already asked my publisher for more time. I'm really struggling, but I'm also aware that that thing that I'm struggling with is going to be the best bit of the book. It's mm-hmm. that's where the the I, I guess the sort of pivot point or the 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 crux, I guess, is the, the the term. The crux of the story is going to be to what extent is she just a regular kid who thinks mm-hmm. she's a villain? And what does that do to her if she's kind of forced to confront the fact that she's not as special as she thinks she is and stuff. So the thing that I'm struggling with. At least that's also the thing that the character is going to be struggling with. And hopefully, hopefully that'll mean it'll become a really good book if I ever get it finished. <laughs> but that is classic standard, Jack. You must be about three quarters into this book. Am I right? Because isn't uh, this where you're... A little more than halfway yeah? and it's due on well, Monday. <laughs> and this is where your anxiety comes. This is, we talked about this last time. Your anxiety comes at this point of the writing process and then you go for a drive, you do the cafe thing, you believe in yourself, you listen to the podcast episode with me and Gabe, and then everything's okay again. <laughs> yeah, thank you for reminding me of that. You're right. You've caught me at the exact, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm always happy to, to speak to you, but the, today I was like, oh, man, I feel like such a fraud today and tonight I have to go and do an interview and act like I'm a proper writer and I really (laughs) wasn't feeling it but you're right this is exactly the point at which I'm always not feeling it when I'm halfway through a book and it's not shaping up the way I expected it to which you know I'm sad for you Jack but it's uh, it's kind of cool because we talked about this last time but you're on the other you're at the end of it and so it's kind of interesting to speak to at that space right now yeah i might have to go back and listen to that episode again give myself a a bit of a pump up i think you you have this beautiful quote saying it's okay i'll get through it i look at my other books i know i can do it even if i think i can't do it i can do it so i think you should listen to your own inspirational quote (laughs) yep well i've got my shelf of all my own books here right now with me i can just 
stare at that for a little while tomorrow. I'm, I guess I'm also conscious of the fact that it's not just a self-esteem thing. It's a, it's a too many projects at once thing. So I need to be, I'm trying so hard to focus on this third stunt kid book, but I also have to um, do a, a proofread on a book called, sorry, a copy edit on a book called 10 Minutes of Danger that'll be out next year. I have to write an outline for 300 Minutes of Mystery, which will be out next year. And we're just now coming into Children's Book Week. So every day I'm doing school visits as well. So I'm trying so hard to focus on this book in between school visits and, you know, emails from other things. And I'm supposed to be promoting Kill Your Brother. And I've just locked myself out of my Facebook account for stupid reasons. <laughs> So, yeah, my life feels like a bit of a shambles. I'm oh, um, so sorry, Jack. <laughs> it's all good. Oh, but as you just pointed out, I always get to the other side you eventually. Do. So you do. I, 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 wish we, um, I wish we really were sitting at a Thai restaurant eating laksa. Mm, <laughs> that would be nice. Would be lovely. Oh, def definitely. Come on. <laughs> I think I'll put it on the calendar for maybe 2022 when we're out of lockdown. That sounds good. <laughs> Sounds Looking really far. To. Sounds really far away, though. Mm. <laughs> now, Jack, I'm not going to ask you why you write because that would be boring. Because I've asked you that probably about 24 times now. Um, I'm going to ask you this question: What defines a Jack Heath novel? Ah, that is a really good question. I think um, in a typical Jack Heath novel, not a lot of things will be summarized. Like you'll see a lot of stuff happening but it'll kind of jump from a scene where one thing is happening to a scene where another thing is happening and so so forth for the rest of the story. You don't get a kind of chapter that says, it took a few months for blah, blah, blah to happen or um, over the coming days, Maya realised blah, 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 blah. I don't write that way. I think you only, you only see the scenes. You, mm -hmm. you don't get handed the context around them. Um, and that's not necessarily a strength, by the way. It's just the way that I write. I kind of wish I was able to do those wonderful summaries of the seasons, the way someone like J.K. Rowling can, but I'm just not wired that way. Um, I think there'll always be action scenes. This is something that, again, I, was, uh, I learned writing Stunt Kid, which was when I tried to write it as a comedy kind of didn't work but when I tried to write it as an action thriller that was funny suddenly it worked so I think the action scenes are here to stay no matter what genre I'm writing in um, and no matter what audience I'm writing for and I think that as a general rule I, I suppose this is particularly true of my novels for adults like Kill Your Brother and Hide Out and, and all those others you'll end up with um uh, even if it's not the main focus, there's always a love story, kind of. In, in my kids' books, there's not. But in, um, in my books for adults, I don't, I don't think I really know how to, how to give someone a beating heart other than to make them long for someone else. Like that longing that Timothy Blake feels for Reese Thistle mm -hmm. is the reason that readers have come along with me on the hangman journey for so, for so long. And... Um, Elise Glick from Kill Your Brother, her, her love for the police officer, Kiara, um, who has quite a lot in common with Reese Thistle, really. There's, um, that's kind of what's going to get her out of her prison or it's what makes the reader want to see her get out of that. And even a character like Stephanie, their captor, um, Stephanie doesn't have a love story exactly, but she has this same kind of longing for her daughter who's now gone. 
So, yeah. So I, I think that that's a, a as neat a summary as I can give you of what a Jack Heath book has in it, although I appreciate that it wasn't very neat. Next time you ask me that question, I'm sure I'll have a better answer. Oh, I won't ask you that question again. I have to think of a new one. Mm. But I, I really like that idea of longing because longing can, it is both a negative and a positive sort of feeling, you know. I think it yeah. slips between the two because longing can also be a really good thing because you're longing for someone unless, you know, you're not getting them. So it's an interesting, I think longing is a really interesting emotion because it's not romance, it's not broken heart, it's sort of somewhere in a grey area in between. Yeah, that's right. And it's something that each of us has experienced, mm. so it's easy to identify with. But you're right that it's both positive and negative. If, if you think of it in terms of um, uh, let's leave other people out of it for the moment, but if you think about your own future, like if you... Um, if you wish things could be different, if you have this sort of longing for a different life, then that's obviously unpleasant, but it motivates you to work to pursue it. Um, but if you don't have that longing, then you may well be at peace with yourself, which is great, but you might not end up accomplishing quite as much. But I don't think that presence or absence of it is really, I don't think it's much related to your actual circumstances. I think it's just kind of baked into your personality, mm. meaning that if you're a high achieving kind of person, that may well be because you're always unhappy or you're, you're always kind of wishing you could be a little bit better than you are. And if you're um, entirely at peace with yourself, then that must be wonderful, but you're probably going to be at peace with mm. yourself um, whatever your status is, and you'll never kind of rise above it. So, yeah, I think it's an interesting thing to write about. But like most things I write about, eventually I'll, um, I'll, I'll kind of make my peace with that issue, whatever it is, and then move on to writing about something else. But I feel like there's still a lot to explore there. Mm, no, I think so too. And I love how you said that about being at peace, but then still or having that longing. So, and I don't think either is a bad way to live your life. I think you said it perfectly. It's baked into your personality and that's that's kind of how you how you exist. Yeah. Well, in my case, I know that I uh, for this is a just a very real concrete example is that I try to write 2000 words per day and I usually fail, which means that <laughs> Uh, by my own metric, I am a failure as a writer most of the time, like almost all the time. But I could have a revised goal of 1,000 words per day and then I'd pat myself on the back every day, but I'd never write more than 1,000 because I'd stop when I was done. So I've hit the option where I accomplish more but feel worse. <laughs> Oh, Jack. Uh, and You're I don't mean to day. sound like I'm patting myself on the back for that or, or <laughs> suggesting that this is how other people should live their lives. It's just, yeah, it just seems to be the way that I'm wired. I love it. I love it so much. I relate to, and I've caught you at this really sort of anxious time. So I appreciate your time, Jack. I always love, love, love speaking to you. Now, on Twitter today, you promised that we wouldn't talk about Jack Bauer. Any last words about Jack Bauer? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think that well is dry. Like it's, so it's the kind of thing where it, it's not that, you know, 24 wasn't a fascinating show that we could keep talking about forever, but I, I do also feel like it's been so long since I've watched it, I no so. longer have very much to say. And it's that same kind of thing where, um, as I said, I kind of stopped 
thinking about an issue once I've written about it enough. Mm. And that kind of central issue of 24 about doing the wrong thing for the right reasons or sometimes doing the right thing for the wrong reasons or, or whatever, um, I've kind of explored that in all my Hangman novels now. So I maybe that means I'm less inclined to talk about the issue in general. And for me, that was the... the um, the biggest part of 24. So I guess, let me say, do you watch Bridgerton? We could talk about that from now on. Or uh, we'll, need to find, we'll need to find another thing that we loved, Jack. We'll love. Okay. Buffy so, the Vampire Slayer? I'll keep going. I think it was Paul Cleave there for a while, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll find something, we I'm sure. We certainly will to be obsessed about again. But no, I mm. think I think you're right. I think you're, you're done with that sort of moral dilemma stuff for now. And, and I think. The longing is is the next thing you're exploring, and I love that because it's so ambiguous and so real and so human and so vulnerable. So I really, really, really yeah. dig that. Well, in that case, can I quickly recommend one more book to not Please. only you but also your listeners? Please. Um, it's called "I Give My Marriage a Year," and it's by um, by Holly Wainwright, and it's amazing. And as far as exploring that sort of longing, like. Most romance novels, and this is not a romance novel, <laughs> to, to be clear, uh, but I, I feel like when you're exploring longing, it makes sense to write a kind of romance novel where you've got a character who, who obsesses over someone else who seems to be out of their league or, or whatever. That's just like an obvious way to do it. It's much harder to write a book about a, a woman who has a longing for her own husband and a husband who has a longing for his own wife and nevertheless can't quite get their lives together and nevertheless are at one another's throats all the time. Mm. Like it's hard to describe just how, how clever that book is and how well it explores those emotions. And there's some books that, uh, you know, some, some books make you wonder if the author has cameras in your house this is the kind of book that makes you wonder if the author has, like, is hearing your thoughts somehow wow. in a brand new plan, you know. Mm. But my marriage is doing fine, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> it's the kind of book that I don't want to recommend to people because then they think my marriage is in trouble. <laughs> but it's amazing. You should I, I didn't think that for a moment. But, you know, I, I felt that with Sorrow and Bliss. I felt when I read that, I felt, oh, wow, So I, I, someone's watching me, I feel seen. So I, I know exactly what you mean when you see a book. And although your life isn't reflecting of that, you just feel it. You know, there's something yeah. about the emotion in it or the, the vulnerability that you just feel that this is part of what you're experiencing. Yeah, I felt that with Sorrow and Bliss as well, which is, and I read that because um, Hannah Monson, who reads the audiobook of Kill Your Brother, she also read the audiobook of Sorrow and Bliss. So that was how I came across it. Wow. And she, you know, explores those characters in such an interesting way. But there's definitely, um, there were moments in that. Uh, one of the wonderful things about literature, I guess, is that it's so subjective, like every bit touches a, a person differently. But there's a scene in Sorrow and Bliss where the main character finally meets a psychologist who gets her, you know, and I had to pull over. I was just crying. Like I couldn't, yeah. I, I, it wasn't safe for me to drive and listen to that audiobook anymore. A bit like a Paul Cleave book, but in a much more sort of pleasant <laughs> or a, a more cathartic sort of way. You weren't than, vomiting. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't vomiting. I wasn't unconscious, but... It was just, yeah, I was so wow. profoundly moved by that. 
Mm. I would um, I would love to find out how the author did it. But then yeah. again, I don't want to spoil the magic. The magic, yeah. And, you know, I had the same experience reading and I wasn't driving. I, I started it at about 6 p.m. at night. I thought, oh, I'll knock over a couple of chapters. I ended up going upstairs because my family all went to bed and I didn't leave that lounge. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning until I finished that book and I started crying from about page 200 and I didn't stop until the end. Like it was just this incredible experience of reading Sorrow and Bliss and you don't forget those those moments yeah. when you when you get that special book or film or whatever you never forget those moments that something in that book dug deep into you and really spoke to you that's right but it's funny how you were talking just before about uh Paul Cleave and how you and crime writers in general and how you hadn't expected him to be so funny but I think it's things like sorrow and bliss is also very funny. Like yes. when people when people talk about it, they're largely recommending it in the way you and I just did. Like it just made me cry so much. But the reason we got to the crying bits is because of all the funny bits along the way that kind of rewarded us for our, our attention. We were talking, you and I were talking before about suspense and building up to those twists and stuff. Humour is not quite the same thing as suspense, but it's similar in the sense that it's rewarding the reader for their attention, like yeah. giving them a reason to keep going, not just because there might be a twist down the track, but because these individual sentences are giving them something. And yeah. I think Sorrow and Bliss does that so well. Absolutely. And she's hilarious. Like I've seen her um, at a HarperCollins event. I've spoken to her on the pod and she is just so funny herself. She's got that really sort of wry, sarcastic humour, which I just adore. So she's, she's hilarious herself. Oh, wow. Okay. I might listen to that episode, but full disclosure, I also might not because I kind of, you know me, I have this view that you shouldn't know too much about the authors that you like. Yeah. And yeah. I know that it flies in the face of everything you do <laughs> but because uh, you're all about like understanding what went into the books and stuff. But I would hate to have the experience where I listen to her on the podcast and then understand exactly how she wrote Sorrow and Bliss mm -hmm. and then go like, oh, wow. That book that felt so incredibly real is all just an illusion, mm. which is exactly what I do, which is exactly what every other author does. So I know yeah. that it's an illusion because that's what fiction is, but I, I want to be able to kind of yeah, preserve that. From memory, I think I did try and preserve it for myself as well, to be honest. Yeah, so okay. we, we just talked about the book, I guess, in terms of, of the way we did just then about how powerful it was, because I think I didn't want to ruin the illusion for myself either. Mm. All right. Well, I'll give it a listen and maybe that can be what we discuss uh, next time on, on the pod. Well, we're never next sure. Time, <laughs> next time Meg Mason needs to pick me up, she can listen to the last five minutes of this episode with that's us talking about how amazing she is. And, that's right. That's yeah. right. Meg, if you're listening to this, you are incredible. I we don't know you. how you do it. I would give my left kidney for the ability to write the way you do. <laughs> absolutely we're all about all about literature here and uh, and what makes us feel good but thank you jack i love love speaking to you and hopefully next time we speak maybe we can you know do a face to face because i miss people right now so be absolutely great. <laughs> let's have a culturally inauthentic uh mango lassie at a thai curry house <laughs> That's fantastic. I would be happy with a cheeseburger at this point in time, but whatever. Yep, done and done. <laughs> thank you so much, Jack, and thank you for taking the time. I know you're super busy. I know you're in that 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 weird place of your writing, so I really appreciate that you took out the time to have a chat. So can't wait to whatever you've got for us next. No worries. Kill your husband, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. We'd love to engage with you on social media. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Danny V Books Words and Nerds podcast. You can also subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and read more books.